Isn't this something? <laughs> I'm the only preacher in Tulsa today who gets to preach with his head above the clouds. <laughs> and you know, I was looking at this airplane. I'm kind of jealous of that guy. Uh, from the time I was a child, I always wanted to fly a biplane. Never can, but he can. Wouldn't that be something? Amazing stuff we have. I am the most blessed man on this planet, and I believe that with all of my heart. I'm secure in the kingdom of God. I thank God that when I was 10 years old, during the invitation, the Lord drew me to Him. I was immersed into Christ, and from that time, I've never felt alone. I'm the most blessed man in the world because God allowed me to have my high school sweetheart as my wife for 59 years. I can never thank God enough for that blessing. I have a wonderful family. Four sons, a daughter, 11 grandsons, two granddaughters, five step-grandchildren. I lose count. It's either 16 or 17 great-grandkids. I can't keep up with that. And when we get together as a family, there are four generations, and we enjoy each other. I'm the most blessed man upon the earth. I have more friends than it is legal for a man to have. <laughs> I'm the most blessed man on this planet. I have good health. At 81 years of age, I can do almost anything I could do when I was 35. Now, it may take me longer to get over it, but I can do it. <laughs> I'm the most blessed man upon this planet. I have a lovelier home, my house lovelier than any house I ever dreamt I could have by God's goodness and God's grace. I have a 1996 Toyota with 243,000 miles on it that runs like a sewing machine, and I didn't pay for it. Erkin Bakayev and Kim, as they were getting ready to go back to Russia, they sold their house, they sold everything, but they had this left. And Erkin said, Brother Jim, God has told me to give you this car. <laughs> You know, I got counting back of the last 12 or 13 vehicles that I've owned since 1965. I've bought only one of them, and that was a Mercury I bought for Barb because I wanted her to have a reliable car. God is just amazing, and how He has cared for me. If I'm hungry, it's by choice and not necessity. The Lord provides for me. I have music. Music to me is like breathing. My home is filled with music. Much of the day, the classical station, sometimes I'll take a break, uh, you know, with a little jazz. God, by His grace, has allowed me to make music. I, as a child, I played the ukulele and then the ocarina. I was in a harmonica band. I took piano two years in high school, uh, clarinet, you know, you name it. It's just God allows me to sing and whistle <laughs> Sometimes when I'm singing and I realize somebody's hearing me, I stop and whistle rather than be embarrassing. I'm the most blessed man in all the world. I have a heart-bound relationship with church leaders all across this company, uh, country. Right last night, this morning, communication with church leaders expressing prayer for one another. And I could never thank God enough for bringing me to this church in February of 1981. What a, what a, I can't think of another church 
I'd want to be a part of in this one. And aren't we blessed to be led here by a group of elders, none of them which have any agenda other than to be faithful stewards of God's church. You know, on and on I could go. (laughs) But with all honesty, I have to declare I am the most blessed man upon this planet. Often the words of Chris Christopherson's song come to mind, Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what have I ever done that was worth loving you and the joys that I've known? I'm the most blessed man on this earth and I have done nothing to deserve these blessings. I haven't earned them. All I've done is just receive them, (laughs) experience them with gratitude toward the God who in His goodness for reasons that I do not understand has given me a blessed life. I'm the most blessed man upon this planet. But on the other hand, in contrast to my life or the lives of so many precious people with whom I spend hours every week, dear people whose lives are filled with pain, suffering, sorrow, rejection, Some of their pain comes from physical illness, some from rejected relationships, some from wounds that they received when they were children and the pain of life is still with them. You see, the pains that I have in life aren't mine, but they're the pains of other people whom God has allowed me to love. So often I... I would want to be an umbrella and hover over them and let the rain fall on my back and not theirs, but I don't know how to do it. And so we talk and we pray and we seek to walk together through this seemingly unending valley, which really for some the only end of it will be when God takes them out of this world. You know, in these times, there are two songs that often come to mind. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress And the way grows weary and long Oh yes, He cares, I know He cares His heart is touched with my grief When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. And then another song, too, that 
we sing sometimes, I need thee every hour, that plaintive refrain, I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour, I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. And when I sing that plaintive tune, I have to ask, does Jesus even hear the prayer in that song? Does He care? And this morning, I declare... Oh, yes, he cares. <laughs> I know he cares. And that's the proposition I want to put forth this morning. Begin by noting this staggering thought that God knows every one of us individually and intimately. That's, that's beyond our imagination, isn't it? Now, there are two theologies that have been about for some time, at least 300 years, that deny that God has any involvement with us or is even aware of us. One of these is deism, which had great influence during the time of the American Revolution. Deism is an outgrowth of Newtonian physics and the philosophy of John Locke. And deism says that God indeed is the great creator, and he created this earth and established quote, laws, whereby it operates. And then he went off and does whatever God does when he's on vacation and just let this universe operate like a clock on a, on a, on a shelf by all the laws that he established. He pays no attention to us. He is not involved with us at all. The world is constant cause and effect. Now, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that. Otherwise, guys like Chuck Shepard and Jerry Dunn couldn't be engineers because there are these things that function that way. Deism declares that God really takes no notice of us. The second theology that's been around really for centuries but revived in recent days is uh, many... Reformed theologians present this, not all, but it's God's immutability. And since we read in Scripture that there is no shadow of turning in God, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God is unchanging, and God is sovereign, therefore God cannot respond to us emotionally because He would be changing. He might be happy one day because we're blessed and sorrowful the next day because we're grieving and God would be changing. And not only that, we would be affecting who God is by our experience. So God, being immutable, never responds to where we are. You know, I reject both of those theologies. First of all, because they are the product of pure human logic. And secondly, there are so many passages of Scripture that contradict those two points of view. First, consider the Scriptures that declare that God is individually 
and intimately aware of us. That's described no more clearly than in the 139th Psalm as David is contemplating his own life and God's involvement. And listen to these words. You know them. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You just scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And then in the next verses, 7 to 12, David says, It's impossible for me to hide from God. I go to the depths of the earth. I go to the heights. Every place I go is, even when I'm in the darkness, God can still see me. And then the last verses, 13 to 16, reflects on the fact that God knew him from the moment of his conception. He knew him while he was in the womb. He knew him when he came forth. And he said, all of my days were already written in a book, even before I lived them. And he spoke of God's foreknowledge. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I have to agree with David. Jesus echoed those sayings, recall, in which he said, are not two sparrows, Soul for a farthing, and yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. And people sometimes joke that guys like Dave Troutman and I, it's not as hard for him to count. But what silly things to say. The point is God knows each one of us individually, totally, completely, and intimately. The New Testament also echoes David's remarks concerning God's foreknowledge. Peter wrote in uh, 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and so on and so on. We could quote many, many passages from the New Testament that speak of God's foreknowledge of us as individuals. And so to use human terms, the picture the Bible gives us of God and His relationship to us is this. The eyes of God are upon the earth, looking intently. The eyes of God are intently focused on every nation. And the eyes of God are intently focused upon every one of us as individuals. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. But not only does God have intimate knowledge of us, He is sympathetic, He is empathetic, and He grieves over what we experience as members of a fallen race. The last time I spoke we referred to Genesis 6-6 and which is, refers to that time in which 
every intent of man's heart was toward evil. The world was turning totally away from God. And in Genesis 6-6, it says in the King James, it repented God. Other versions, it grieved God. And the Hebrew word is naham. And we pointed out that's on a monopoic word, a word that sounds like what it means, God's side, naham. He grieved. God grieved. Really, in behalf of humanity, because of the horrible direction the human race was taking. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. That double negative means our high priest, Jesus, is touched by the feeling of our... That's empathy. Empathy, sympathy is when you see someone and you feel sorry for them. Empathy is when you actually enter in and I'm experiencing this with you. Our Lord has empathy with us. We see sympathy before the tomb of Lazarus. Remember Jesus' dear friend whom he loved, Lazarus, died. And Jesus delayed. He could have come early and healed Lazarus, but didn't. He let him die. He said, of course, because God was going to be glorified as a result. But when he came before the tomb, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, were grieving with him. And he saw the neighbors, and they were weeping and mourning. And the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And those neighbors looked at Jesus and said, Behold how he loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus. But why was he weeping? He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, call him back. Don't know if Lazarus is happy about that or not, but call him back. Why did Jesus weep? Surely one reason was sympathy for these mourners who were seeing the tragedy of death as a part of human existence. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us death is the last enemy that Christ will destroy. But also sorrowful over what the fallen human race has to experience. Our Lord, in this case, probably sympathetically, grieved over the plight of man. Psalm 103, verse 13 and following, just as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. Hear that. We are a congregation of individuals individually who fear God in a holy way. And we have the assurance that as a father pitieth his children, God pitieth each one of us who fear him. Peter urged in 1 Peter 5, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Not only does God have 
intimate knowledge of us. But he is sympathetic, empathetic, and grieves over what we experience as members of a fallen race. But so what? What does that mean for us as we experience the very vicissitudes of life that come upon us as we walk upon the earth? Well, one thing it does not mean is that we will live comfortable, peaceful, pain-free lives. It doesn't mean that at all. Sometimes you hear Christians recite various verses in a victorious manner. For instance, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Whoopee. I urge you to read the following verses, which speak of persecution and say neither death, nor life, nor sword, nor nakedness, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. We will experience challenging things, but in it the love of Jesus gives us the sense of victory, regardless what happens. Sometimes you hear Christians who recite uh, Hebrews 13, 5 to 6, he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What will man do to me? Well, one thing man can do to me is kill me. <laughs> Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And if he doesn't kill us, he will persecute us. Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, my persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. By the way, Timothy was there when Paul was stoned to death, at least left for dead. What persecutions I endured, out of them all, the Lord rescued me because God still had a reason for Paul to stay in the world. And then he said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The beautiful Opening to the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter 1, 6, This you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. We could go on and on and on and read scriptures, can't we, that say that because God loves us, because He is sympathetic, because He is empathetic, because He grieves, does not mean that we will live lives free of persecution. As a matter of fact, if you are serving God in some way at different times in your life, you will be persecuted. I know an instance where 
a man working in a particular business, the manager of that business, and the men who worked with him went out to strip bars and so on and so on. There was one man who worked there who wouldn't go with them. And so he was persecuted and ridiculed and the butt of many jokes. He was persecuted because in that situation he was standing for righteousness. And I know many of you have been in those kinds of places. But here's a real concern. All over the world, not only in Muslim nations, but in Western nations, laws are being passed that will make it increasingly difficult for us to follow the commands of Jesus Christ. Making it difficult, for instance, to preach against certain sins. A minister in Canada called homosexuality a cancer of the human race and was forced to publicly get up and repent or go to jail. He repented, I think I would have gone to jail. Sad, but the day is coming that if the world continues the way it's going, you and I who are determined to follow Jesus at any cost will pay a cost. Christianity is not something that we can practice privately. It is evangelistic, it is missionary, and we can't keep our mouths shut or else we are disobedient to our God. Secondly, the fact that Jesus loves and cares does not mean that we'll be, we will be immune both to the good times and bad times that affect the culture in which we live. Jesus in Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. Sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. It makes no difference. If we're in a drought, Christians experience it as well as unbelievers. In the early church, remember, there was a famine in Judea. And everyone in Judea was suffering because of that. And the Christians did too. And the only way the Christians had relief was when Christians from other nations began to send offerings to help in that time of famine. Christian or not, everyone in Judea experienced that famine. When the Roman Emperor Claudius declared that all Jews had to be expelled from Rome, every Jew was forced to become a refugee traveling around the Roman Empire finding some place that they could settle as home and that included those Jews who were Christians. And a, a Priscilla and Aquila were too. So... Because Jesus loves me, because he is sympathetic, empathetic, and grieves, does not mean that I will escape the good and the bad times of the society and culture in which I am living. The fact that God cares for us and loves us does not mean that I will be immune from disease and sickness that is a part of the human experience. Paul wrote to Timothy, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. Now wait a minute. Now the Greek 
describing Timothy says he was a water drinker. <laughs> In other words, he, was a, he abstained from alcohol. Paul said, don't do that anymore, Timothy. Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities. Think of that. <laughs> this godly preacher, this apostolic delegate, evidently had some kind of a frail constitution. And Paul prescribed the medicine of the day. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Here's an interesting thing. You see the apostolic teams as they moved about and they preached the gospel and sometimes they worked miracles of healing and didn't fail. But you never find them using those supernatural gifts for their own benefit. No team of Paul, team member of Paul's was healed. But they suffered the sicknesses and diseases and frailties and infirmities that are a part of the human race. Because Jesus loves me does not mean I will be immune from disease. And illness. You know, illness comes for a number of reasons. Sometimes there are spiritual reasons. You see, the case of, of Job, for example, and Paul. Remember Paul, he said, you know, I have this thorn in the flesh. Three times I asked God to take it away. Three times God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace means you can live with this condition. I'll give you the grace to do it. And then Paul said, the reason he let me have it was because he gives me so many revelations I might get puffed up and having this thorn in the flesh keeps me humble. You also, if you read in Galatians 4, you will discover that the reasons the Galatians got the gospel is because Paul was traveling through Galatia and was sick and couldn't go on. And he had to stay there, and as a result, he shared the gospel with him. We don't know what his illness was. It was something that had symptoms that made him unpleasant to be around because he said, even though I was not pleasant to be around, you weren't offended, you still received me. We wonder, did he have eye problems? Because he said, you would, if you could, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them. Did he have some kind of running eye disease? We don't know. But Paul clearly knew what it was like to be physically sick. Sometimes sickness is a result of sin. Remember when Jesus had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda? He later found him, and this is what he said in John 5. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, You behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The implication being that man was crippled because of sin in his life. Sometimes sickness is the result of sin. Now Jesus clearly said that not all sickness is caused by sin. Remember when Jesus healed a man born blind? And the rabbis taught that really sickness was the result of sin. And so if you were having some physical illness, there must be some kind of unconfessed sin in your life. And so when Jesus healed the man born blind... 
The disciples said, Lord, you know, this man was born blind. We can't figure it out. Who sinned? Did his parents sin or did he sin before birth? Jesus said it was neither this man's sin nor his parents. <laughs> but he said it was the works of God that might be displayed in him. There was a reason for that. But the point being, all sickness is not the result of sin. Now today there are some healing ministries that teach something along those lines. If you have a particular illness, then we need to meet with you and we need to pray and we need to discover what is the sin in your life that caused this? I heard one man say that everybody he knew that had cancer, he could trace back and within the last six months they had unforgiveness in their heart. Um, I, I will not use the language I feel toward that. Some sickness is a result of lifestyle. Two of my uncles died with emphysema. My Uncle Marion, I never saw him as a child unless he had a cigar or a pipe in his mouth. He died with emphysema. My Uncle Richard, you hardly ever saw him without a cigarette in his mouth. He died with emphysema. Their sickness, their disease was a result of a lifestyle. And many sicknesses are that, aren't they? It's what we do in our foolish lives that cause harm to the bodies that God has given us. But many sicknesses, as those demonstrated by Timothy, are result of our fallen humanity. That's the way it goes with this fallen humanity of which we are a part. Let me especially comment here on mental illness. My brain is an organ just like my fist. My fist can have circulatory problems. Uh, it can have poison ivy on it. Uh, all kinds of, it can get arthritis. The same is true of my brain. My brain is not who I am. But it is the organ that is necessary for me to function in this world. And when I die and whatever happens to the soft tissues of my body will happen to my brain. But I will live on. My brain is not who I am. And when we're praying for somebody who has a physical illness, really what we're praying for is a physical healing. Lord, heal this organ that is malfunctioning. One of the cruelest teaching that has ever come forth is that all mental illness is a result of some kind of an evil spirit in your life. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, you will notice that our Lord Jesus Christ, as he was bringing about healing in verse 24, a clear distinction is made between demoniacs and those who are mentally ill. Now, the Greek term says translated in King James, lunatic. Many other versions, epileptic. The word is seleniazomai. It really means moonstruck. And that's because in those days, the belief was that mental illness was caused by too much moonshine, moonlight, pardon me. Uh, <laughs> 
if you stay, stayed out too much at night and the moon was real bright and you're, you were exposed to that, it could cause mental illness. And they began to especially notice epilepsy. And they said, you know, it's kind of interesting. Epilepsy kind of follows phases of the moon. And so they were called moonstruck. And that's where the word lunatic comes from. The, the Latin word for moon is luna. So a lunatic is one who is moonstruck. And so in Matthew 4, you find the various diseases. You find paralytics and others. And then it says demoniacs. And then it says the seleniodzomai, the moonstruck, the mentally ill. A distinction between demoniacs and mentally ill. Horrible, the teaching that puts forth that all mental illness is a result of your harboring some kind of an evil spirit, not so. And aren't we thankful that as God has allowed us to progress in our understanding of our bodies and the science of medicine, that not only do we have antibiotics, but we also have things that can treat mental illness. It is treating an organ. That's what it is. Now, we do not deny that demons can cause behavior that mocks mental illness. You have the case of the time when Jesus and the apostles were upon the Mount of Transfiguration and they came down and their disciples, there were nine disciples at the bottom in a quandary. Here was this boy the man had brought and they tried to heal him and couldn't. Matthew says the father said he was a lunatic. Uh, Luke and Mark say that he was influenced by a demon. So the sickness manifested epileptic symptoms, but it really was caused by a demon. So, demonic forces can mock a mental illness. But a mental illness is no different than this diseased organ and that diseased organ, and our prayer is for mental healing. And thank God, that he is giving us increasing knowledge and ability to heal both physical and mental illness. And at times, praise the Lord, he just intervenes and does it anyway. How beautiful that is when that transpires. Well, what difference does it make, really, that Jesus cares? Ultimately, it means that beyond this veil of tears, there's a heavenly kingdom waiting for us. When Paul was in prison and he knew execution was not too many days or possibly weeks away, this is the second time he was in prison. He'd been in prison once, got out and did a, a hurried missionary tour, and then he was rearrested, knowing that the executioner's block probably was not far in the future for him. He wrote this in 2 Timothy 4. I am already poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought a good fight. 
I finished the course. I've kept the faith in spite of everything. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Ultimately, the fact that Jesus cares means that when our journey, our race, our mountain climbing comes to an end, there is a heavenly kingdom waiting for us. Praise be his name. Oh, how many things we could, verses we could read about that. Not only in the future, but even in this life, the fact that Jesus cares for us, we experience his comfort even in this life. Perhaps you get tired of hearing me refer to Hebrews 4 <laughs> about our great high priest, but that is such a vital passage to me. And it concludes with an exhortation that we come boldly before his throne of grace. And notice it concludes by saying to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Mercy in this situation means God changes something. Oh Lord, I please do something here. That's mercy. God lightens the load. But grace is his bestowing the ability to live through it. We receive both. Last Thursday, I think it was, I was involved with a situation in which it looked like a dire thing was going to come about. And I was crying out passionately to God in behalf of this individual. And within an hour... It was clear that dire experience didn't happen. God's mercy. God comforts us in many ways. He comforts us through one another. Second Corinthians chapter seven, five, five to seven. Paul is writing about it. he had no rest. I was afflicted on every side. Conflicts without fear. The great apostle Paul fear. Fears within, he says. God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. Titus had been comforted by the Corinthians and he came to Paul and said, you know, they're praying for you, Paul. They love you. And Titus' presence comforted Paul. Isn't that true sometimes? Sometimes when we're going through a horrible time, a precious brother and sister shows up and does nothing but be there. And there's comfort. Concerning the certainty of the resurrection, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. On and on we could go, but... Isn't it true that one way God comforts us is by the Holy Spirit He has put within me when I come into your presence 
the Holy Spirit comforts you through my presence because I bear that spirit into your presence and you bear that spirit into mine. He comforts us through a sense of his presence. Hebrews 13, 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You've heard me refer before to a very marvelous, I can only say existential experience that I had several years ago. During one of Barbara's hospitalizations, hospitalized for six weeks, I was there virtually around the clock, day after day after day. One reason was I had to protect her from inept medical personnel that kept making mistakes, always on the alert. And that person you love so dearly is suffering and you feel so helpless. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, the 23rd song comes to mind. The still water means nothing. The green pastures mean nothing. The rod and staff mean nothing. The only thing that means anything is thou art with me. And in those moments, prayer has normally understood is totally out of place. The presence of God. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. He also comforts us as he adjusts our priorities. Colossians 3, 1 to 3, Paul talks about the need to set our affections on things above. And when we go through these times, in which this body we've always counted on doesn't work right anymore. And we look at ourselves, and in this case, say, why me? No longer can we climb the mountain and achieve and be doers, but we're forced to be idle. We really often go one of two ways, bitterness, or we begin to think in eternal values. This world is really not what it's all about. God comforts us by embracing us in our helplessness and weakness. We already quoted this once, and let me quote it again. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. A number of years ago, I uh, had pneumonia. <clears throat> and throughout the years when the family was younger, I would see that they went to the doctor. I would not go to the doctor myself. First of all, we couldn't afford it. And so I would trust the 
healing powers God had put within my body to heal me and tough it out and usually get well, except with poison ivy. <laughs> that didn't happen. But this was a time in which as I developed pneumonia, I remember I preached on Sunday, and when I came out of the pulpit, sat down next to Bill Sullivan, not uh, Sanders, <laughs> I tell you, my whole suit, even my suit coat was soaked with sweat. I kept trying to work in the office. I wasn't going to quit. And one day I started shaking so much I fell on the floor trembling and John McVeigh was passing the door and he saw me and he came in and lay down and spread his body on top of mine face to face totally. Anybody looking in the room didn't know what was going on would have been suspicious. But it was a, he was trying to stop my trembling and I realized I had to give up and go to the doctor. <laughs> I couldn't sit up, and I was in bed really for about a month. But I want to tell you, that was a glorious time. I couldn't do anything. And so I can still remember very clearly just lying back in the bed with my head on the pillow. Oh, Lord, I just rest in your arms. What a beautiful time. It was as if a father was holding a little child in his arms. God was embracing me, and I could do nothing but lay back and sense his love. God embraces us in our helplessness and weakness. But there also is that confidence, and we've already spoken of it, that our prayers are heard. And sometimes mercy is extended, and sometimes grace is extended. But God does hear our prayers. Let me conclude by reading Revelation 21, 3 to 5. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That's what we look forward to. But in the meantime, we don't walk alone. God walks with us through the Holy Spirit that indwells us, He walks with us through our brothers and sisters who share life with us. God is fully aware of our lives. And this morning I can declare, does Jesus care? <laughs> oh, yes, he cares. Amen.